Put this banana on. Got my banana going. Got my banana. It's pretty fun of them to call it that. All right, we're going to try again, huh? Okay, I'm going to hit the record button then. Do it. Clap. <laughs> no, you weren't supposed to say it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Joe Rogan. What am I dealing with? I don't know. Oh, man. Uh, I'm Ryan. I'm Harland. And this is the Daughterless Philosophy Podcast. Episode Dose. <laughs> Let us cast this pod. What is a pod? Never mind. Uh, yeah, this is a continuation of everything for all zero members out there. Um, today, we're going to talk about, uh, I guess it's a... What got it all started? I don't even know what it is we're talking about, but I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about how things get started here. Um, there was a a metaphor used in a paper about evolutionary biology, and this particular metaphor is an architectural metaphor, and the the authors use the word spandrels for this metaphor. Um, the paper is called. The Spandrels of San Marco and the Panglossian Paradigm, a Critique of the Adaptationist Program. And it's by Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Lewinton. And Gould was a paleontologist at Harvard University, and Lewinton was a population geneticist at Harvard University. Um, and I guess they weren't too far away from each other in the, the building where they uh, had their offices, and so I guess they were somewhat chummy. Um, and Lewinton, in his own right, was quite influential, um, especially with respect to, and I'm going to make this little uh, um, uh, the dichotomy, um, he was a very influential neontologist, if Gould is a paleontologist. So, um, and this paper in particular was super influential within the field of evolutionary biology. Um and essentially, like it says, it's, an, it's a critique of the adaptationist program. And adaptationism is defined by them in a couple different ways. But the one that I kind of like the most is sort of the, the kind of in brief uh, definition, which is essentially something along the lines of, you know, uh, atomization plus optimizing selection on parts. So the idea is you have an organism and you take them apart into their basic, uh, you know, whatever it is that's sticking out to you regarding features that organisms possess, for instance. And the idea that adaptation is trying to optimize them through natural selection towards some kind of state that matches the environmental conditions, you know, as best as they can. So that's their sense for what the adaptationist program is. And... Um, you know, it drew the ire of, of many in the field, but it also kind of scared a lot of people, uh, because their critique, in my opinion, was quite extensive, you know? Um, so they start off the paper with a whole bunch of really, uh, interesting metaphors. Uh, they do something that I think is really effective when it comes to try and talk about biological systems. They use 
uh, anthropogenic systems. So kind of like um, Darwin used artificial selection to kind of talk about ultimately natural selection. They're using these architectural, structural um, metaphors and, and you know analogies to try and talk about uh, organisms and sort of the byproducts that can occur in in both, you know, and sort of what the what role those have to play in evolution. Um, and so, uh, again, it 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 was kind of a frustrating thing, I think, for a lot of people in evolutionary biology at the time because it was calling out maybe some problems that you know a lot of evolutionists at the time were you know exhibiting you know in their work and so um it's been years and years it was published in 1979 it's been a long it's been a long enough time now that it's it's not really something that makes the you know the rounds on a regular basis in at least discussions of you know, evolutionary biology. It's certainly within evolutionary biology does, but, you know, it doesn't make it into the mainstream all that much. It's not like there's like tons of videos on YouTube about spandrels or the metaphor that they were using. Um, and so I happened upon, uh, there's, you know, I kind of have to get into this a little bit and then we'll stop um, because then we can kind of get into other stuff. But I happened upon there's this there's this individual named Brett Weinstein and he made uh the news because of kind of more political reasons. He was a professor at Evergreen College and he um um I guess I'll get into some of the juicy details, but not too much because that's not really what's important to us here today. Um but he made his um 15 minutes of fame or whatever you want to call it. Um by kind of refusing to leave campus um, when, you know, some of the, you know, the student groups and even the president's office, apparently, or whatever of the school, um, said, you know, hey, you know, there's this whole <clears throat> absence day or something like that where all the people of color leave the school and, in, and, and everybody else gets to see what it's like to not have them in the community for a day, you know. And it was a, based on some play. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of a, a you know, a, a poignant kind of very poetic way of trying to say, you know, you know, people of color matter, you know, and, um, they turned it around. They did an inversion and they were like, Hey, wait a minute, let's have the white people not be at campus so that, you know, <clears throat> I don't know why they did it, to be honest with you. That's not important to this podcast today, but, um, you know, Brian, Brett Weinstein objected and that course in today's world of you know um media outrage and being appalled um you know that's something that just blew up and before you know it he was on fox news and cnn and all that kind of stuff being interviewed by the big wigs and the media and so from there he kind of got caught up with some of these other people <clears throat> today who are, you know, kind of in a similar situation for similar reasons. So obviously a very famous person today who's kind of in this same boat is like Jordan Peterson. And, you know, some of these other people who in today's political landscape are, you know, things they say don't jive, you know, with the extreme left or the extreme right or whatever. 
and out of this is poured this new kind of, I don't know if you call it a movement or whatever, but the intellectual dark web and all that kind of stuff. So Brett's kind of part of that. So now that he's part of this thing, I think, you know, he's probably doing things because well, he doesn't have papers to grade. Um, uh, because he and his wife decided to not, they resigned from their posts, and they both were evolutionary biologists at the school there. Anyway, um, so he goes on the, 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 the talk circuit, but now he's got a little YouTube page, and he's got a website, and he monitors debates and does things like that and has his <clears throat> ideas out there. And so, he you know, for YouTube, he makes these little videos with a, obviously some kind of tech-savvy friend, and, um, you know, he puts out you know, whatever it is he wants to talk about, right? That's the whole point. So one of the things he wanted to talk about was this um, four-part test, he called it, of adaptation. And essentially the idea was that, you know, uh, you're going to have these four parts, these four criteria, and if, you know, a feature of an organism or whatever that you're interested in meets these criteria, then damn it, it's an adaptation. So it was one of those kind of things. Um, but the whole way into that for himself was all of this spandrels talk. And so um, he decided that, you know, after discussing uh, it with his uh, cohort when he was in grad school or whatever, a lot of them took it seriously, this critique of adaptationism, the critique being that people are too quick to come up with a story, an adaptive story for some feature of an organism. And... Um, you know, and then others were like, eh, I'm just going to ignore it. And he thought, no, nah, we need a way to actually, uh, you know, reverse this trend so that we can always have a way to neutralize this spandrels argument, which we'll get into in a second. Um, and so anyway, that's all the motivation. So I was talking to Harland and I was like, God damn it. You know, like I kind of think uh, that he's sort of, you know, he's kind of like <laughs> exhibit Z, you know, like we've gone through all the letters of the alphabet. We still have Z. Here comes this guy you know, 30 plus years later, still doing the thing that I think Gould and Lewinton are saying don't do, you know, and they have all these big reasons. So it's kind of frustrating because it's like, well, I, what are you doing? Are you just kind of, are you just, uh, you know, exhibiting the, the very thing that they say don't do? It just seems interesting. And so therefore it makes me want to listen more. And I'm like, well, wait, what's, you know, what is this? And so that's kind of how we get here. And, um, so I'm going to stop for a second, take a breath, and let Harlan be like, ask a, probably a, a very relative or relevant question that I have totally just missed, but we'll keep this thing going. Well, I, one of the things that I was wondering about is if you have an opinion on this. You were saying there's not very much up on YouTube about this right now. It's not something that's commonly brought up in general intellectual culture, though it may be slightly more popular in the evolutionary biology circles, I don't know. But would an explanation for its absence be closer to because everybody accepted it? The argument got put out there, it established itself, and now we don't need to talk about it because everybody knows that adaptationism is faulty and we need to abandon it. Or is it more like the Gould-Lewinton position has been abandoned, uh, sufficiently re refuted, and now nobody buys it. Uh, apparently, Weinstein is a staunch adaptationist. Yeah, I would say. It's vague, um, but... 
do you know anything about is there a survey data is there what's the going position i i don't have an answer to that question um uh partly because in a way like again i don't really think about this one in particular too often and um unfortunately i don't have very many evolutionary biology colleagues and so i'm not like you know hitting the rounds at the you know getting a cup of coffee and have you heard the latest you know coming up to me someone from behind you mm -hmm. know like i don't get that as much so it's uh in some ways i'm just doing this more or less i have been doing it on my own for quite a long time even when i was in an academic setting it seems like um so there's that but like uh so I'm not exactly sure if it's been fully accepted or, or not. I think that the basic thrust of what Gould and Lewinton were saying was taken to heart or whatever the, you know, they, they it was noted. And I think people are more careful, perhaps, than they have been. But again, I'm kind of, the things that I'm interested in are not, little studies about birds. You know what I mean? Like I, so I think in a way they, at least with Gould and Lewinton, Lewinton being a population geneticist and Gould being a paleontologist, I kind of think that these two guys were kind of on the outside of these. So they were kind of coming in from the outside and like, you know, you know, kind of thinking they were above it all or something and being like, that's not the way you do it. And I think that's kind of, that again is the the pattern with Stephen Jay Gould, as wonderful as I love, you know, the ideas that he came up with and just his willing to go in and just be like, yeah, you know, and just start a fight, you know, and really get things going. And I think it's, you know, hard to say he didn't. Um, you do kind of wonder, like, if he had taken a little bit different tact sometimes, he probably, this wouldn't be talked about as much, I suppose, because... Clearly, he riled people up. I mean, he's this is a guy who said at one point, only two or no, a year later, that he thought that the you know the the modern synthesis, and I'm taking this a little out of context, but this is how it was read or interpreted initially. Anyway, was like the modern synthesis was effectively dead. You know, he just came out and and said something along those lines. I am taking it out of the context, but basically, the the hubbub rose from something like that. And so um, he did a lot of things to piss people off. And, you know, and Lewinton, I, I always got the sense that, you know, he both these two guys actually were both, I think, at one time really like they were scientists. They did a lot of science, a lot of data collection and, you know, did a lot of math and the modeling and the, you know, the the comparing the data with the models and all that kind of stuff. By this time, I don't know of they kind of seem to be more just philosophers at this point, you know? So in some ways, maybe you could say, well, Hey, they were coming in from the outside, but maybe you could say they were kind of coming in from the outside from a more, you know, a, a wider scope philosopher of science, historian of science type perspective. And this is kind of how they assessed the, you know, the bird feeder studiers or whatever. Um, and so that's me being a little uh, dismissive, but it's not my interest. I, I can see where people get really into it, but I, yeah, those Harvard professor outsiders always stirring things up. <laughs> uh, that's cool. Yeah, that's great. Right. I get the impression from reading various other critics that Gould had a tendency to have... Well, I mean, and he's a, he's watching people charge the mound and argue with the umpire all day, right? Yeah. Baseball being one of his big things. Oh, yeah. So he's kind of that 
that sort, right? He want, he's going to get tossed. He gets yeah. in your face and he tells you. Yep. It's not enough to say, I, in my considered opinion, <laughs> some adaptationists are a little bit too far on that side of the spectrum and I wish they would uh, come towards the center a bit. Yeah. No, it's... The modern synthesis is dead. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. Right. Exactly. Right. Uh, and he definitely—I don't know if this plays a part in any of it at all. But he, you know, he's certainly—he is a New Yorker. You know, so I—I I mean, so the sort of more confrontational style of kind of just being up front and forward and not beating around the bush. Maybe that was part of it too. Um, maybe he really hurt some, you know, uh, Midwestern sensibilities. Not Chicagoans, of course, but you know what I'm saying. Um, I have no idea. It's a, you know, yeah, he definitely was one of those kinds of people who rubbed them the wrong way. Um, but you, I yeah. think it's, well, do you have something to finish? No. <laughs> I think we should get into the idea and then maybe circle back around to the personalities later. Yeah. But. Because it's kind of gossip. Uh, let's talk about what it is they're saying in this paper. Just what is wrong in their view with um, the general orientation of breaking an organism up into, what did you call it, discrete atomistic traits and then analyzing those traits as being the result of some sort of unintelligently designed process of optimization that we call natural selection. If that's a, a fair restatement of what adaptationism is doing, at least the way they characterize it, what do they say is wrong with that? Well, first I want to set it up with their, um, you know, their, their metaphor. Um, you know, I think, the first thing is um, it's it's not obviously looking for adaptation and all that it's 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 uh it's looking at at it from a from a different perspective entirely uh so you know count them down as you know uh, uh you know believers in adaptation and believers in the power of natural selection and that it being a primary mode upon which most evolutionary uh, change occurs. Um, they wanted to point out this idea of spandrels, which at the time, what they talked about was there's this structure in the uh, St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice that has a particular style of uh, architecture where you have um, like four different arches and then you put a dome on top of it and the the base of the dome is a circle. And the space between the dome and, say, where two arches come together produces this sort of, like, tapering triangle shape. And, you know, of course, they fill that in with, I don't know if they used drywall back then, but they fill it in with something. And these tapering triangles are just, as they were saying, just, just a byproduct of the actual overall structure that is uh, is you know you know put together, so um, once you have these you know tapering triangle faces, 
um, you know, because they were always putting their, um, you know, their, their, their pictures and their mosaics and everything all over the walls and the ceilings of these churches, you know, these, the way that these tapering triangles looked, um, it almost looks as if they, it, it, the intention was to have these beautiful kind of ornate triangular type shapes with the, you know, the way that they made use of them with, you know, these, you know, these saints and then the, the rivers that, you know, apparently are being represented um, as, at the, the, the bottom taper point, you know, and as if they're flowing through, um, you know, this, these sort of biblical rivers flowing through the church and all that kind of stuff. Um, their suggestion was, again, that it's just a byproduct and that they think the problem is that many evolutionary biologists are just looking at, say, something attractive like those spandrels, which are also called pendentives, and we'll get to that in a sec, um, but are looking at that and saying, well, in order to have the spandrels, there must be this amazing ornate structure that is built around them, you know? And so the adaptationists are starting from the spandrel and moving out and they're saying, no, there's a structure and a byproduct is the spandrel. And that is sort of then worked upon from there by say natural selection or something. But the spandrel itself is not a, is not the result of natural selection. It's just, it's just a space that just happens to be there. Maybe the arches and the dome were part of natural selection, but there might be features of organisms that just are there. And so how can we be sure or satisfied that we're onto something when we're doing our science um, regarding these kinds of, uh, you know, these kinds of features uh, that we might be saying are adapted to their environment. And their worry was that when they, if they looked deep, a lot of the things they found were just these kind of stories that were told. It's kind of like the last episode with John Searle in the Chinese room. It's just sort of like, hey, I came up with this idea. That's that's good enough. Let's move on. And that was the critique in large part, I think, that they really kind of launched the rest of the paper off of, was that there were these stories, more or less, as they called it, just so stories. And they used the Dr. Pangloss story about, you know, noses are, you know, there, you know, just for the glasses, you know, so that you can have, so you can wear spectacles, you know, uh, you know, those kinds of, um, types of things. Um, so anyway, that was, that was sort of the kickoff point for the whole paper and the idea they used other, <clears throat> um, examples, including like Aztec sacrifice ceremonies and stuff with respect to the eating of, um, the sacrificed individuals. And, you know, it turns out, you know, one of the explanations that some uh, used was that, okay, well, during rough times, they had to, you know, the Aztecs turned to cannibalism. They had these great ceremonies and they, you know, once they killed somebody, you know, they really, they all needed protein. And so they, you know, would, would have these big sacrifices. And um, that was the kind of the, the reasoning for why sacrifices were such that, you know, people would even eat the sacrificed individuals. But it turns out upon, you know, further, you know, research that it looks like actually just the, the elites ate some. And I'm guessing, I don't know if they had alcohol, but you can imagine a party where people are drunk and they're like, you know, pushing each other into like having a nibble of the leg, 
you know, and that seems kind of like a wasteful thing. Why would a society, you know, actually be looking to looking to turn to human protein if really, you know, what it looks like from the from the, you know, the data or evidence that's been collected later is actually just, you know, just some it's just more ceremony upon ceremony or whatever. So they used a bunch of these different examples, uh, metaphors, whatever. Um, to try and illustrate that sometimes things aren't exactly what you, they, they appear to be and that we should just be careful. I think through all this time and me now sitting here talking to you, that's kind of how I think in the end we, you know, what they were ultimately saying. Um, there are embellishments, of course, but. Yeah, right, let me give it a try at explaining it in my words and see if I've got it. That. The general point about the spandrels is we go out in the field and we start making observations. We gather data. Then we go home, we go back to the lab, wherever we do this. Scientists have armchairs too, right? And we theorize about why the world is the way that we observed it. We seek a causal etiology of the data. So in this case... You go to the church and you see this spandrel and it's got this beautiful painting in it, whatever. One might theorize from that data, ah, that tapering triangle is the way it is because they needed a place to put that iconography. We needed that saint uh, symbolizing that river and it's the spandrel is there to house the art. An alternative explanation might be that it doesn't have a purpose. It's an accident. That tapering triangle is there because what really mattered is the dome and the arches for whatever purposes those are for. And the triangle is a complete mistake. We after the spandrel came to be, it can be ex-apted, right, if I'm using that term correctly, Yeah. to be a place to house a work of art, but that's not why it's there. It's, that's not a part of the causal history of the triangle. First triangle, then art, versus uh, that there was something about the icon that needed a space and we brought the spandrel into being for that is that somewhat the difference yeah i think so so they get frustrated with these adaptationists who run around gathering data and then analyzing all of it i don't know that might be a straw man caricature of golden luantons to say that Every that there are these things called pan adaptationists, I don't know, but they say that there are people whom they want to critique that interpret every piece of biological data as something that can be atomized as an individual trait, and that that trait is for doing what we now think it's doing. Uh, interfacing with the environment in a way that's conducive to survival and reproduction. 
And they would like people to slow down, right? And say, but there's all sorts of other evolutionary mechanisms from the whatever they are. You can rattle them off better than I can, but like drift or whatever the other choices are that don't be so swift and confident to interpret everything as an adaptation of a trait for a purpose by natural selection. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I think the, uh, the the long approach, or the, sorry, the long approach, the more nuanced definition of the adaptationist program, they said, was this program regards natural selection as so powerful and the constraints upon it so few that direct production of adaptation through its operation becomes the primary cause of nearly all organic form, function, and behavior. So I think what they were in particular in this paper wanting to kind of drag up a little bit more, or a lot more in Gould's case probably, was the constraints bit. You know, these developmental constraints. Um it just happens to be that I think, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, he backed off from constraints a few years later, <laughs> you know, so like he, but at this, at this point in time in the paper, you know, that was something he was trying to say. And I think for him, the imagery of the, you know, the arches and the dome resting on top of them was, you know, that structure was so constraining upon, you know, all the other shit, you know, um, like the spandrels included or pendentives. I kind of want to just quickly go through the pendentives bit. Do you do you mind so that we can just start calling them either or with at least some with with at least at some point us mentioning pendentives in a way they're where they're defined or whatever, or at least just giving them some context. Sure. All right, pendentives are actually apparently that's the the what Gould and Lewitt were calling spandrels, um, the 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 more you know close name for them, a close name, but that's kind of the, what I'm trying to get at, is pendentive, which I guess is a type of spandrel, um, you know, a space related to arches that is formed when other things right over the top of the arch, you know. Um, you know, so it doesn't have to be a dome, for instance. It could be like a flat ceiling or something like that, I suppose. You could still get some kind of a triangular shape as the arches, the golden arches, come together. Um, so I think that's sort of the idea. Um, apparently, um, you know, I, I think in uh, for Dane Dennett... Um, he really took that to task to an extent in his book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. But then that was later uh, taken to task by, not really to task, but it was definitely addressed quite heavily by a guy who was an actual architect who did, does research and has all these, you know, had all these NSF grants named Robert Mark. And which kind of, you know, he was like, yeah, the name's wrong, but, you know, the the, the idea that, you know, these things would have been, you know, uh, chosen over others is not correct. He's like, this is pre-scientific days when people were using things and they wanted, you know, they would learn probably, you know, the craftsmen would learn a certain trade and they would stick to it, you know, because it worked, you know, they weren't, you know, out there kind of like, 
which ones? Apparently. That's what he was remarking upon. Um, so that's sort of the little bit of history there. Um, you know, Dennett, if you want uh, my R0 uh, audience of, of, of zero, um, you know, uh, it, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, you know, plenty in there to, to read about. It's well over 400 pages, I think. So, um, it's over 500. Yeah. Um, but the, okay, so what's the reason he's bringing this up? I think it all comes from this line that Gould and Lewinton write early on, and that I picked up on it too, because I've trained myself to always have the little bell go off <laughs> when you hear absolutes. Yeah. But they say spandrels are a necessary <laughs> architectural byproduct. And Dennett also picked up on that, and he was asking them to look a little closer. Oh, really? Is it really necessary? Um, because, and then the reason that Gould is bringing this up, I think, is the whole, I don't know how to pronounce it, the bow plan idea, mm -hmm. that there's some level of description of organisms. And I don't know the details, but perhaps they would even claim that there's some thing in the DNA that make that is more fundamental or something but that it's that's the kind of the analogy between the architectural constraint and then a body plan constraint that there's only that there might be some fact about a given individual organism's phenotype that necessitated the possession of some other physiological feature i don't want i want to avoid trait because they're criticizing trait um <laughs> yeah so then the way that dennett was bringing up you know okay well you know we're, uh, the whole pedantic point about well they're not you are misusing the terms <laughs> spandrel and it's not really a spandrel but it's a pendentive and uh that doesn't really matter but the part that dennett said that i liked was to view spandrels as design problems, not features. So yes, when you want to put a dome on arches, now you've got something to deal with. But let's not go from that to, well, it is necessary that there will be a tapering triangular space, because there's all sorts of different ways that we could deal with that affordance, or whatever, you know. Um... I thought that point made sense. So then to go back to the organismal <laughs> side of the analogy, yeah, you got a body plan. It's more like it's not very likely that a horse is going to fly given that it weighs 2000 pounds or whatever they weigh. Um but does that necessitate <laughs> something? I don't know. I don't like nece necessary claims. Well, <clears throat> it's interesting because you you mentioned the horse, um, because um, the one question I think that 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 arises, and I'm not exactly sure how this applies to <clears throat> you know Dennett's point, um, because I you know yeah I mean when you have the words ne ne you know necessary and constraint that sounds very strong right, um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, how do I put this? I feel like 
this is again maybe what we were talking about with respect to Gould, maybe. Um, where, you know, he pokes the monkey expecting to get the angel and is surprised when he gets the monkey. <laughs> you know, like <clears throat> um that that that's sort of his maneuver, you know, and he's shocked that everyone's so mad at him now or whatever, <laughs> but still. Um yeah, I think that the necessary stuff is, you know, is is just very it's very strong language or whatever, you know. Um and uh considering that they believe that, like that they're like, yes, it's necessary and all that kind of stuff. I still don't quite sure I'm not sure if that ends or ruins or hurts their overall argument anyway you know because in any in any case here you've got Gould trying to tell it you know uh, and and Lewinton trying to tell adaptationists to be more open-minded and then you've got Dennett trying to tell them to be more open-minded about the other telling other people to be you know more open-minded or whatever you know it still leaves the adaptationist whoever they are Brad Weinstein um you know it still leaves them not being nearly as open-minded as like you know if you like take those two stages, you know, and just go out and be like, Hey, there's other things. And then there's other things within those other things, you know, which is essentially what I think that just happened with, uh, the Gould Lewinton and then the Dennett, you know, stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, that's kind of, yeah. I don't know what you think about that. Well, I, I still think that there is an argument here and that, from my interpretations of them, I lean toward Dennett winning this part of the argument, that if, or to the extent, that Gould and Lewinton need it to be necessary or even very tight constraint caused by the architectural or body plan features, Dennett is saying, even given your own example, as soon as you realize that there are Multiple, a multiplicity of solutions to that design problem of how to fill in the empty space between your dome and arch, that the very spandrels slash pendentives of San Marco, Dennett thinks, are great examples of adaptations. Quote, chosen from a set of equipossible alternatives for largely aesthetic reasons. They were designed to have the shape that they have precisely in order to provide surfaces for the display of the Christian iconography. So he's even saying that Gould's own example, his prime case of an of a non-adaptation, Dennett sees that as an adaptation. It's not necessary. There's a bunch of ways you could have done it, and you did it this way because that's the way that's best suited to your environment. So how how deep I mean what is what is the is Dennett talking about both the architectural example and the cultural milieu of building you know cathedrals back in the day and evolutionary problems or is he just trying to say you know even if we're not talking about biology let's talk about the architecture you got that wrong you know or whatever is that what which is it? Like, is it all, or is it just one? Is it... In this passage that we're now looking at, he's talking about what you had as your first choice, the architecture and the cultural extension. 
But in the chapter, obviously, he makes it about the biology most of the time. Right. Yeah, because I think that was the that was the point that I thought that that Robert Mark was trying to say to Dennett was that um, Pendentives became the element of choice. This is I'm quoting here. Pendentives became the element of choice in the sixth century A.D. to provide support to large domes over arches springing from four piers. Since pre-scientific builders relied heavily on proven approaches in their designs, it is unlikely that the designer of St. Mark's would have considered other systems. Like, he wouldn't have been like, ah, but we all love those pendentives because we can paint our paintings. It was, sure don't want this dome to fall on everybody's head. I know how to do this. So I'm, I think if that is, if we're, if we're going to corner the market on that, then I don't think... Then I think that that's so now you've got Gould saying something, Dennett saying something to Gould, and now you've got this guy Mark saying something to Dennett. And I think that we if we're gonna talk about which I think ultimately is the is the thing that we're trying to get at, which is like the biological uh the evolutionary biology part, I don't know like I mean I would say that well maybe it isn't what Dennett thinks. And so moving on from all of that, is that though what Dennett is saying the case in biological systems and i think that's where the actual debate now lies because that's who gould and lewinton were trying to hammer away at using these metaphors and then going to actual examples in their paper does and i don't know i mean it's been a while since i've read the the dennett thing does he attack their examples is he like and then your biological examples too is that can you like is there that in there or Sorry, I'm just like, I don't, I'm like pawing in the dark. Um, what biological examples are they using? I don't even remember that. Well, that's another issue then that but, I have know, is that, well, why, yeah. why don't we remember the biological example? Like we get caught up in this metaphor and now we're up here critiquing the metaphor and somehow that's supposed to have consequences for the biological stuff and it's like well wait a minute you know we kind of need to go back to some of the things that they said the basic overall like uh movements that they made through their paper where they start out with these metaphors then they get to some of the nit and gritty you know bird experiments and whatnot <clears throat> and and you know their basic like you know the hand waving that happens by uh you know uh you know you know the you know those those pesky adaptationists and then they talk about sort of the styles of argument that are going on uh and then finally they they go into the you know the big one was just the just you know telling stories the dr pangloss you know kind of thing where you know uh all this is manifestation of the rightness of things since if there is a volcano at Lisbon. It could not be anywhere else, for it is impossible for things not to be where they are because everything is for the best or whatever. They goes through that, and then finally they start moving into like saying, and even different cultures of scientists seem to also uh, have a different take on these. So they were talking with the organismal side, the sort of what they were talking about, like what's going on in continental Europe. And then, of course, you've got the Brits and the Americans with which... Gould and Lewinton, uh, fairly or not, uh, called, you know, the sort of this, this atomization with optimization of, you know, 
you know, uh, via selection on parts and stuff. The adaptation is programmed. And, uh, you know, as I recall also, uh, you know, Russia has had its own history, which actually, if, first, if I think to do it, can do it right. That Russian history with this stuff, I think, has a huge impact on why people like Gould and, and, and Dennett would have issues with each other, which is in, in another wrinkle here. But they also talked about, they, they included Darwin. And they were like, and even this guy wasn't, you know, they were, you know, wasn't, you know, talking about just one mode and that this is all that matters and all that kind of stuff. So that was sort of the thing that I think at the end, if you were around as an evolutionary biologist in 1979 and you've read that whole paper, you might go, oh, crap, you know. I'm not saying that years and years later, with all the work and talk that's been going on about it, we don't have other more fuller, nuanced ways to talk about each of these moves. Um, but I do think that there's like, well, you know, what about the biological examples that they provide? And 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 is there something there that, that reflects what it is they were saying about the metaphors? Um, but anyway, um, I'll I'll just sort of stop there for a second. Well, I don't know. Do you have one of those handy? Or if not, when I talk for a minute, you can go find one. Yeah, you should talk for a minute. <laughs> well, this is why you and I are doing this. Because we come at things from a different place, from a different orientation most of the time, I think. Because I prefer to talk about things in the abstract from this level of, yeah, that's fine. Let's talk about the spandrels that I don't need to talk about birds because it's all the same thing. If you just abstract up far enough and you have this orientation of, yeah, but yeah, maybe he's wrong about the spandrels, but let's go look at something closer to the fundament and see if down there, there's a point that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, we'll try to do that, I guess. Oh, I, I now I, rem uh, I remember one of them. He had the bluebirds, mm -hmm. but I don't remember the point of it. They took the stuffed bluebirds to, towards the nests and s what, counted how many times the males and females showed aggressive behavior. Yeah, that one was, um, it was, yeah, about the, the aggressive behavior of males and I guess females. But there was an initial study that tried to see, um, you know, sort of pre-post egg laying of a mating pair. They put this one bluebird model male out, this one particular guy. Um, I, this one particular guy, this is so sad. I'm like, why don't I have his name? It doesn't matter. Um, <clears throat> anyway, they put that out and they just, you know, recorded the behavior of the male before eggs were laid and then two times after. And it was like every 10 weeks or something like that. So not a huge sample size, number one. Um, and so what they found, uh, what this guy, you know, uh, reported was that uh, the, f the first, you know, seeing the, you know, at first seeing the actual, um, you know, model, the male was quite aggressive um, and maybe even kind of aggressive towards the female as well, <laughs> but, uh, I can't remember exactly 
how that one goes. But then for the yeah, second... they got pissed off at the at the new guy for showing up uh-huh. and trying to cuckold them, and then they got pissed at their wife too for like, <laughs> "What are you doing screwing around on me <laughs> with this dud?" <laughs> right, exactly. Um, which I think is funny as hell. But uh, um, so there was that, and then um, you know, uh, so then the other two times it was like, "Well, I got my baby, and my baby's." So I've cooled off or whatever it is. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, uh, let's see if I can, uh, let's see if I can actually, you know, find it. Um, oh, I've got it right here and I can, yeah. like, here's what the point of this one was. Cause then I was wondering, I remember the blue yeah, but why yeah. were they doing this? Mm-hmm. So Gould says, we would not object so strenuously to the adaptationist program if its invocation in any particular case could lead in principle to its rejection for want of evidence. In other words, adaptationism is unfalsifiable. They are claiming, I think. And that bothers them. Um, it, it annoys them. The, the, they talk a lot about the just-so stories as being plausibility-based and that that is considered enough. Uh, this person that they're critiquing the Bluebird study of Barash, Barish. Right, Barash is how uh, They quote him as saying, Barash, the results are consistent with the expectations of evolutionary theory. Aggregation, uh, aggression toward an intruding male would clearly be advantageous early in the breeding season when the nests are normally defended, so that they just... He Gould is saying you guys stop too soon and too early and get mm-hmm. too satisfied. Right. You witnessed a behavior. The male is more aggressive before egg laying and less aggressive after the eggs are laid. And you go sit in your armchair and you say, oh, well, that makes evolutionary sense mm-hmm. because what the male is interested in is passing on its genes. And once the eggs are already in the nest, it's highly likely that he his genes are in those eggs so he doesn't need to worry as much about philandering female bluebirds. That mm-hmm. makes per- that accords with evolutionary theory. It's a plausible story. Publish. Receive <laughs> yeah. awards. Done. End of story. And Gould <laughs> yeah. is like, wait a minute. That's not enough for science, right? Right. And so then they talk about how some other group, Morton et al. or whatever, tried to repeat the study. And they did it with a different... Um, uh, uh, species in the genus or whatever. But um, they, their conclusion was, well, we hope to confirm that Barash's conclusions represent a widespread evolutionary reality, at least within the genus Cialia. Unfortunately, we were unable to do so. And they found no, <laughs> which I love when people come up with things like anti-cuckoldry. <laughs> they found no anti-cuckoldry behavior. Um Males never approached their females aggressively after testing the model at any nesting stage. Instead, females often approach the male model, in any case, attacked male, female models more than males attacked male models. This violent response resulted in the near destruction of the female model. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and they said, yet yeah, instead of calling Barash's selected story into question, they merely devised their own to render both results in the adaptationist mode. Perhaps they conjecture replacement females are scarce in the in their species and abundant in barrages, since barrages males can replace a potentially unfaithful female. Blah blah blah. They keep going, 
Um, and for myself, but the like, punchline just is: what good is a theory that cannot fail in a careful study? So uh, that's what they're getting at, right? This is just kind yeah. of a Popperian falsificationist. What you're doing shouldn't count as science because you can always tweak your story to salvage an an adaptive trait. I think that what they're saying is, you know, maybe it was Popperian. I don't know. Um, um, I don't know if they would say that this isn't science. Um, Maybe they would add qualifiers. I don't know. This is okay science. It could be better or something. Um, but I do think what they're attempting to do here, as in within much of the paper, is to say, you know, they've got their metaphor, which I think is a c- fairly clear metaphor, at least, you know, when you read through it a couple times, you go, yeah, um, it's not something that's difficult, although, who knows, by this episode standard, it's, you know, not difficult to convey to another person. Um, and then, you know, from there, they then kind of leave open some space. Like, hey, you know, so now we've got some options, uh, you know, besides just adaptation. Because some things might arise that, you know, have no particular purpose. They just are accidental. Blah, blah, blah. Then they, I think they kind of go through, it's not systematic, but they kind of go through kind of saying, you know, and you don't even have your acts together either. <laughs> Something like that. I think it's a way to kind of because um, the 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 field of evolutionary biology, 1979, um, was so full of you know uh, uh, successful work, right? With the modern synthesis, obviously the the you know you know Darwin was you know still always in his will always be, I guess, a big deal in evolutionary biology for, uh, I suppose, obvious reasons to those who study evolution and maybe those who don't. Um, but they're kind of wanting to say, you know, you know, this is a lot more pomp and circumstance nowadays than it's made out to be, you know, um, and we need to maybe continue to grow the field by looking at other areas. I think... Maybe I'm being too charitable at the end there, but I kind of think at the end that's sort of what ended up happening, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that response helps helps uh, find some middle ground between the two of us on that. But well, there's the two goulds, it seems, right? <clears throat> and Dennett talks about this, and I read it when I see the paper, the one being the the radical revolutionary who would say something like, because of this, an entire Mm -hmm. centuries-long successful program has been defeated. And the other one who says things like, Darwin regarded selection as the most important of evolutionary mechanisms, as do we. Yeah. The one that's saying, no, 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 we're not that far, we agree with you, we just think you guys are taking it a little bit too far, and we'd like you to pay more attention than you do now to other evolutionary mechanisms, and we would like you to be less self-satisfied with your just-so stories. And both of those things are totally fine to me. I yeah, like that part. Sure. Yeah, and I think that my what 
I suspect or have often wondered um, was whether or not that's why they went so big and bold was because like, hey, I want you guys to pay attention to this. Uh, we, like yourselves, have devoted our careers and our lives to, you know, on all our investment to this particular, um, you know, discipline. And we want it not to be, we want it to reflect what it is that are all our hopes and aims for it. Um, at the same time, when people approach each other and disagree, you know, you know, often we don't keep in the back of our minds that, you know, remember the, the ultimate goal. Like we just all of a sudden when we're face to face or when we're, you know, back to back typewriters, you know, typing at each other or whatever. Um, we often, the hostility can often rise up or whatever. And, um, we can talk about the people, uh, more later. I, I, I imagine as well. Cause I think that Dennett and Gould, I mean, I don't have any major speculations. I just wonder if, if Gould was, you know, cause there's a lot on Gould out there. I don't think there's nearly as much on Dennett as a person. Um, maybe there's a lot on Gould because of the, who he was as a person. I don't know, but, um, I could see, you know, Dennett being pissed off about something with respect to Gould on an almost personal level, but who knows? Um, they did know each other, so, uh, and they were just down the the uh, the T from one another, I suppose you could say. So, um, yeah. Um, All right. Well, let's get concrete or something. You can probably come up with a good example. What is the panda's thumb or the dolphin's five-fingered hand or whatever a good example is of something? Uh, when I go out in the field and I find an animal and I'm curious about some feature of its physiognomy, is that a word? Um, what do you, th in light of this argument or your own thoughts, how do I figure out if that feature is the result of optimizing engineering style natural selection well i have a four-part test <laughs> sorry um yeah well that's you know that's the yeah thing. And we and this is a place we can talk about weinstein's test as well yeah yeah um well i mean for me you know it comes down to you know, I, I, the whatever experiment you would do would be specific to your situation. I don't think there's like a catch-all way to just be like, well, you know, you do this and then you do that and you capture this data and, and, it, and it all goes, you know, easy as that. Um, you know, typically, I think, you know, because I've never done an actual adaptation study, um, but uh, the, of the ones that I've read, you know, a lot of times there's an attempt to, to maintain some kind of control or at least a m multiple number of um, uh, uh, circumstances, you know, or, you know, different experimental designs to compare across. Um, and then that hopefully um, with whatever the predictions are of the, the model, if that model is, you know, based on you know, natural selection, you know, given this organism and its environment, we expect, you know, this particular behavior to, to be exhibited, um, 
you know, in these conditions, these environmental conditions, and that would be the connection and the adaptation to the environment if they exhibit that behavior. When we're out in the wild, it's much harder because we don't always have control of all the different aspects. Um, but the ones we suspect, maybe if we set them up and then introduce the organism to that, you know, setup, if they exhibit those behaviors, that's at least some correlation that we're on the right track or whatever. That's some sign or whatever that we're, we're good. We're coming along. And then you could compare that to various other, uh, traits, um, or not traits, but different, uh, setups. And then the, the organism in the different setups could have exhibit different behaviors. Something along those lines. Is that kind of what you were trying to ask or, or uh, am I just... Not entirely following, but I'll take a stab at it and see <laughs> if I get what you're saying. So you... <laughs> um, I don't know what the word is. I want to say identify, but that seems factive. Um, you describe some feature as being an adaptive trait. You hypothesize or theorize that that is an adaptive trait, and it is for this purpose. Was the test that you were suggesting... Um, submit, subject that organism to various, like, make, actualize some counterfactuals. Like, test that thing out in various different circumstances and see if it uses that trait to accomplish the purpose that you hypothesized was its teleological final cause. And if so then that's evidence in favor of it being an adaptive trait. Yeah, I mean, say you say, um, <clears throat> this is this is just a, you know, probably an overused um, example or something like that. But say you got some finches and you got some nut sizes and the finches have different sizes of their bills and you want to say, you know, <clears throat> these bills are... are, are uh, um, matched to uh, particular seed sizes or whatever. Um, so this you know, small bill will 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 be well suited to crack the small nut, and so on and so forth. Up maybe say you've got three different bill sizes: small, medium, and large. And you know, say you've got you know, I don't know, small, medium, and large seeds, and you say, well, you put the the small build bird in all three set settings where they have only access to small, uh, medium, and large. And then you, you also set them up where they have only access to all, where they have access to all three or something like that. And so in the small seed setup, the small build bird eats the small seed. <clears throat> in the medium size one, it kind of works with it a little and it's like god damn it i'm trying to crack this nut and the big one it just like starves to death or whatever but in the one where you've got all three you know seed sizes it goes always for the small one so you go yeah i think this bill is you know it got a good design for this seed the voraciousness with which it eats those seeds suggests to me that it really likes them <laughs> and it also happens to be the kinds of seeds we find uh, in the same place as the birds themselves, and so we we think that these bill sizes are evolved for these seed sizes, and so on and so forth. I mean, that would be that's kind of roughly what it is that I'm trying to answer, but I'm not sure if that's the right answer to the question you were asking. 
I'm not either. <laughs> and when you describe that situation, I just want to critique it immediately by saying, well, maybe the bird goes for the wrong size for a different reason. Birds, you know, I'm going to assume are pretty stupid. And there might be an engineer who can tell us mechanically that bird's beak is better suited to seed in size range X. But when we immerse them in an environment that has X, Y, and Z sized seeds, the bird typically prefers Y sized, chooses a Y size over an X size, even though it's mechanically suboptimal for snapping those. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, maybe the bird chooses it because of some other feature, the smell, its color, its typical height off the ground. I don't know. Right. So you're hyper- But that wouldn't mean that the bird's bill was not designed, uh, adapted for excise seeds. It would just mean the bird made bad choices. <laughs> Well, and and that's why you would have the last setup, where you got to see what it did with all three, in its in, in, at its disposal, right? So you'd have four setups. But anyway, that's, I was attempting to describe that one, that number four, where it had access to all the, all the different choices, all the options, mm-hmm. but it typically chose a seed size that the engineer tells me is mechanically suboptimal. Right. I could imagine a bird doing that. And if it did, I wouldn't want to take that as conclusive evidence that its bill was not the result of adaptive natural selection. Um, the way you said that last part, I feel like it's coming in, and I'm like, I'm trying to rearrange the words. Um, well, I'm attempting to use the fra- phraseology that the Gould article was using. Isn't that right? What they talk about? Yeah, I th- I think to an extent, yes. Um, but the bird one that they were giving an example of, I don't think that's nearly as. That one sounded like it was just we checked three times. And this is what we found. It matches what we expect from theory. Enough said. Whereas I think with what I was trying to say was that you'd, not that I'm like the best experimenter or whatever, but you'd have four different setups. And your hypothesis is, and it could be right, it could be wrong. Because you were asking me, I thought that, you know, what's a good, what's a concrete way to do an adaptive experiment or something like that? You could say, based on theory, I predict that, you know, that this bill or whatever is going to match this particular seed size over some other seed sizes. Um, And, you know, part of the theory is, you know, you got to survive to be able to reproduce, and that's how you pass on, you know, the natural selection, you know, the theory of natural selection, you know, that's how you pass on those particular traits. And so if you have access to those, you know, particular uh, seeds, and you have those types of small beaks, then you survive and you pass it on and it, it, it originates somehow. It, it, um, it spreads throughout some group, especially those that are, you know, succeeding. And then it's somehow maintained perhaps because 
the seeds are you know still around and the birds are still around and they find some kind of balance or whatever with their phenotype you know matching the environment or whatever therefore we have adaptive evolution and gould maybe you're you're throwing me around here i'm like what do you want me to do you know like what do you did i satisfy the question now that you're playing gould and lewinton that's my question to you like what was your question well, my originally? question to you is i I don't know what my question was, but my mind is now dawdling to an aside question. What's the difference between a beak and a bill? I don't fucking know. I just know that they usually call them <laughs> bills, you know? I think, I, and I don't know. I mean, I honestly, and I, I don't know how important that is except for the ornithologists. However, I will say that, you know, isn't that the same kind of question when people are like, what is it, an octopus? Octopuses or octopi? You know, it's like... And I think the answer is usually, well, the, you know, uh, cephalopod, you know, um, researchers call them octopuses. So let's call them octopuses, you know. It's like that uh, far side joke that I was telling you about, the thagomizer, which was the tail of the stegosaurus, you know. And this one we call the thagomizer or whatever after, you know, thag, whatever his last name was, you know, in honor of him, clearly he got destroyed by one and then somehow that word thagomizer gets because they never had named it in paleontology the tail of the the spiky tail of say the uh you know stegosaurus then they started calling it a thagomizer or whatever anyway i don't know once more does life imitate art the question i was trying to ask is the question that brett weinstein in the video you mentioned was trying to answer Mm. And we so we can try like analyzing what we think of his response, and then see if we can do better or something. Uh-huh. But so I think that Weinstein's question was all right. Well, the way he went through it, he said he told us anecdote about well, I was growing up and going through grad school in the what nineties or something, and he was distraught that the. Gould-Lewinton argument was still taken seriously. He thought, he thinks it's so bad and (laughs) that he's just, he's appalled that anyone still (laughs) even needs to address it. He thinks that it should literally be ignored. So he said, all right, how, how can I contribute to getting rid of this problem? Well, I need to design a very clear test that we can apply to any trait that may be an example of adaptive evolution as opposed to what you know this list do you want to just give the list real quick of other choices you mean his 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 four parts his criteria no 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 i can do those i mean what are the alternatives cuz some of us oh. from outside okay. evolutionary biology might just conflate it. We just think, no, natural selection, evolution, same thing. Right. But then the more sophisticated of you want to say, no, 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 natural selection is only one mechanism of biological evolution. Here are some others. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, obviously the one that people like to say early on is is genetic drift. Um, there's, uh, you know, other, you know, mechanisms that have an impact that are considered, I, I think they're considered evolutionary, would be even like chromosomal crossing over. 
um, you know, because that's shuffling the deck, and there's a lot of different things that happen there. Uh, developmental plasticity is one of those ones that has is is often, you know, I think for many, not for all, but for many, is attributed to the origin of quote unquote traits um, that then get spread and maintained uh, by natural selection. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, clearly like something like mutation is going to be an evolutionary, uh, you know, process in, you know, with respect to, you know, genetics and the genome. Um, is that enough or do you want more? Well, that last one, that's what natural selection is about, right? No. I mean, natural selection is just about more variation. More or less, quote unquote, random mutation and selective retention based on uh phenotypic enhancement like if it makes you better at living in your local environment then it'll be retained but the the the, the grist for the natural selection mill are these pseudo random mutations or is that I think wrong? that people I think that's been popularized I don't know if that is fully the idea I think some would say, yeah, re- replace mutation with like, you know, developmental uh, plasticity, like changes in development, like, you know, these kinds of phenotypic responses and that those phenotypic responses have various dimensions. One of those dimensions runs along an axis we call genes and another one runs along an axis we call pro- proteins and another one's the RNA and you know, or, you know, cell-to-cell interactions and what's going on around with the cells interacting, you know, and some of it's also called developmental noise. And so there's lots of different various ways that these things all interact together. And this is, again, coming back to what Gould and Lewinton were stressing was the whole organism, the integrated whole or whatever, and that there are all these various things acting together in development and that you sometimes get changes in development that then produce the variants that then either potentially can become, uh, you know, if if it's if it's successful enough or what have you, um, you know, can can become entrained in the in the population or whatever. Um, but uh, I think um, uh, they're sort of uh, induced by, and it can be induced by lots of things, and mutation can have a role in that. But it's not to say that it's just you know. The the calculus that includes just mutations as the grist, you know, for the natural selection mill or whatever. I don't know if that that might be overly simplistic. I'd be surprised if it weren't coming from me. <laughs> um, but okay, so if we take the definition of evolution uh-huh. as changes in gene frequencies and populations over time, is that fair? Um. Uh, <laughs> well, where where I don't want to nope. be stopping you left and right. So let's just I, we've had these <laughs> conversations. What is evolution? Fuck. So let's just let's just keep going. All right. I'll sti- I won't ask you. I'll just stipulate that that's what we'll mean by evolution for now. Let's, yeah. Let's do that. So then, one of the questions is, how can we explain the changes in these frequencies in these populations over time? One of those explanations is uh, basic, you know, fitness-enhancing, optimizing, adaptationist natural selection. Mm-hmm. 
Clearly, I don't know the way that you prefer to verbalize that, but this thing that Gould doesn't like and Weinstein does like. <laughs> uh, so it, how can we tell when that causal story applies is what I take the purpose of Weinstein's test to be. Right. If we think that these four, he has four, factors are present, then we are legitimized in assuming that the trait is an adaptive one and that we can then start telling just so stories about that and analyzing it. And <laughs> his four classic. are, if I... <laughs> that is so good. If I remember them. So the first one was complexity, and the second one was um, economics, that it's expensive, that there's a cost yep. to the organism. Yep to exhibit the thing. And the third one, I'm a little bit interested in why this is a third one, but that there's a difference in cost, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that meant between different organisms who both exhibit the trait or between the same organism, but they can do the trait to differing degrees. We can choose to spend more on it or choose to pull back right. or both. Both, maybe. And then the fourth one is persistence over evolutionary time. Right. So he thinks if we identify a trait and it is complex, costly, of a differential amounts and it persists, that we are allowed to uh, burden shift back to Gould. This is kind of a, it's a burden shifting technology, yeah. right? If my thing meets these... I get to mm -hmm. do adaptationism again. Yeah. I don't have right. to worry that it's just a spandrel. Right, right. Or something. And then he used uh, the example, one of his examples was the difference between the greenness of grass and the pink, gray, nothingness color of naked mole rats. Right. And he's saying that, well... Grass is, why is the grass green? Because it has this complex pigmentation molecule that it appears plants don't have to have, but they do, or this one does, and it's expensive. They could have used those molecules to do other things, but they chose to make these pigmentations out of them. Different plants are different colors of green. You could be more or less green, and obviously they stay green for a long time. Okay, now that I've done that, we can say that plants or grass being green is adaptive. But we look at the mole rats, and they also have a color, but we don't find that the reason they are the color they are is the result of a pigmentation molecule that is manufactured by the organism, could be other than it is, Cost it's a, it's just they are whatever the neutral color is, you know that's the spandrel kind of thing. Well, it's just there because they don't have hair and their skin is this color and their blood is this color or whatever. They don't seem to spend on color. It's just a triangle shape between the dome and the arches. Right. Well, but of course, then he goes, well, now surely the loss of color is adaptive. <laughs> he follows right away. So it's like he gets to have it both ways. But yeah. Yeah, I suppose he would be saying, right, to 
not expend on color if color is in general irrelevant or of low relevance to your survival would be the adaptive choice. Yeah, so he don't spend don't spend your capital on pigmentation. Right. So he talks about the economics of living as, you know, that's kind of you know, based on the environment, what is the cost that an organism has to pay to live wherever it's living, right? Um, and, you know, to be honest, I mean, you know, the, 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 I don't know if I'm being nitpicky or whatever, but I'm not quite sure what he means by the green pigment is an adaptation. Is it the green pigment or is it the molecule that um, absorbs the light in photosynthesis, that happens to absorb colors other than green more effectively or whatever to be able to do its energy transfers in the process of uh, photosynthesis. And that's, the reflection is the green, like, I mean, is that what he is getting at? Are we all supposed to say, oh, he's implying it's the, it's the molecule, which is a complex, uh, you know, you know, a uh, feature of plants and other photosynthesizing organisms. Or is he saying that the, what is he saying? Like, what is that? Am I just being dumb? <clears throat> <laughs> um, I'm barely less dumb about that than you. <laughs> so I'm similarly dumb, so I don't know. When a person chooses to use the phrase, a pigmentation molecule... I interpret it as though that is the primary function or the only relevant function that it's doing. It literally is just there to make me green. However, that also sounds to my ignorant mind that that is not what plants are doing. <laughs> Right. Uh, right. Why would they just say it's not like it's camouflage or so? There might be <laughs> reasons to have a pigment molecule that's purpose is to color you, yeah, and yeah. camouflage would be one, yeah, right? Sure. Or sexual selection, it's attractive, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's why plants are green, but he's obviously <laughs> understands that. So I don't, that leads me to also not really know where he's coming from. Because I don't think it's literally a pigmentation molecule, but I don't think that he doesn't know that. Right. Well, the other thing was... So I don't... I, don't <clears throat> I mean, other organisms have, you know, that, you know, like, as I understand it, and I'm more than willing to be corrected, but, you know, like, say, chimpanzees or, you know, animals with thick fur, they're not all... Their skin is not all the same color, Right. I mean, it's like there's a relationship between the fur right. color and and the, the skin color, but not always. It can be un, it doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't be a positive correlation. It can be like a negative uh, correlation or something like that. But that underneath that fur, it can be all these different colors. Why are they investing in a color of the skin to be different than the color of the fur? Potentially, you know, if a naked mole rat's underground and it doesn't have any need for you know, because of the light issue. Um, why isn't it also, I mean, how expensive are pigments? You know, like, it seems to me like 
that you know whatever it is uh that's that's going on it could just be something that's lost um like many things i mean they you know many organisms that are you know cave dwelling in like really really dark environments also kind of lose their eyes they don't they don't need those to see mm-hmm. um but you know why isn't it that those that are just born randomly without eyes i mean i i, I don't know exactly what the the main you know issue is here but it, it i my issues with it were the four parts. We should talk about the four parts of his yeah. way to get back to adaptationism or whatever. Complexity. Well, what's simple in organisms? So that's another way to kind of just sort of, that's the Popperian, you can't falsify me. You know, I know he's saying all four criteria are important. And then once you've got all four, you can go. But uh, uh, complexity seems like you get points on your SATs for writing your name at the top. When it comes to biological systems, anyway. You know, so I'm not quite sure what he means by complex. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, again, when I hear complexity, I just immediately think, oh, well, that's relative. It, and it seems to be uh, interpretable in different manners and... If you choose to describe it in a certain way, it looks more complex. And if you describe it in another way, it's less. It just seems very subjective and relativistic to me. Um, In the video, Weinstein was comparing the biosphere to the rest of the universe and claiming, he actually claimed, I think, there is nothing complex outside the biosphere. Well, he said non-adaptive part. And I'm not, he said the non-adaptive part of the universe, there's nothing highly complex. There are some curious things. There are some structured Mm -hmm. things, but complexity is different. And then he goes on to this, you know, second criterion. I don't know what else is there to say, but I don't know how much I want to say like, man, you're giving yourself a criterion for free. I feel like. You know, okay, you know, pass that test, um, or pass that part. You know, it's it just seems a little too. Yeah. Okay. So your point is everything about biology is complex, and my point was closer to complexity without accompanying measurement details is close to meaningless. Right. But I would say, given uh, the spirit in which I think he's delivering complexity, without defining it, without, you know, uh, providing context and all that, except for maybe later when he's trying to talk about molecules and stuff. Um, my thinking is, well, right there, if he's at least saying molecules are complex, then you could just go up from there. And then I guess everything in biology is as far as if that's a definition of something complex, if, you know, pigment molecules make the, pass the grade, you know? Yeah, sure. There's like adenosine triphosphate, and maybe that's not very complicated compared to like chlorophyll, but still I think, you know, chlorophyll is not an organism walking around. It's just part of a, you know, one of the cells and, you know, well, Really, it's part of one of the chloroplasts, which is an organelle in the cells and all that kind of crap. Um, but we, to some extent, we might be over analyzing. Maybe. In 
but the venue he was presenting it. He might have answers to all these questions and a great account of what complexity is. He still owes it to us, and it just wasn't in that video, which it wouldn't be. Mm. Um, I feel about the second one, I think the same way you feel about the first. To me, costly. Okay, well, everything costs something. (laughs) Like everything that the body is doing, of course it has a cost in energy, in material in time and you know it all so yeah everything's costly so why how is that even how does that help yeah i um cost to me i mean i like costs because they can be relative within you know when you're talking about what are you going to spend like you know let's just use money what you're going to spend your money on because you have a limited supply of you know money to spend or whatever and so you have to budget, you know, somehow organisms would have some kind of a budget. And so then if you're like someone like Gould or me or whoever, and you think of the entire organism, then, you know, you know, costs might actually have, you know, be detrimental to an organism, certain kinds of costs. Um, that's like the one out of all of them that I actually like, <laughs> because... Uh, it seems to me anyway that at least he's trying to couch it in almost more quantifiable terms. Like the complexity thing is hard. Variance is okay, but again, you and I are thinking there's some ambiguity there. And then persist over evolutionary time, I mean, is kind of a temporally myopic thing to say in a way, given that what he says earlier, which is we are, when we get to an organism, the race is already over. It's like, well, then that's just a huge assumption you're making, but we'll get to that later. Uh, sorry. Um, he says, take a stupid example. You know, your heart has four chambers. It's quite clear that a four-chambered heart has advantages in terms of efficiency because it isolates the oxygenated blood from that that's been depleted. There's no doubt that that's why it evolved. Even if there were humans that occasionally had that variance, like maybe different chambers, chambered heart, different number of chambered hearts or something like that. And even if you had the budget to find the genes responsible, and now he's talking about scientists having the budget. You have the genes responsible for the difference you're talking about, an immense investment in research to prove something that's utterly obvious, which is that, you know, keeping the oxygenated blood separate from the depleted blood has uh, efficiency advantages. So to me, what he's trying to, you know, taking his adaptive, um, you know, kind of disregarding the financial aspects he's talking about uh, and taking his four-part, you know, or at least the first two criteria, you know, somehow the heart is a complicated thing because it's got to separate the blood and it's got to do it efficiently. The organism can't die, you know, because it's got to separate the blood because of the, uh, you know, the oxygenated blood, it's got to have certain functions in the body, and the, you know, less oxygenated blood has got to, you know, you know, got to be just essentially brought back to be oxygenated by the lungs, etc. Um, you know, so there's that, and then he's starting to talk about the cost of, you know, you know, if you have, you know, fewer, you know, uh, uh, chambers, perhaps, how are you going to make that work? You know, well, you know, 
you know, is it, you know, if you can say that a three chambered or two chambered or no chambered heart or whatever it is can be, um, is, is viable in an organism, you know, closely related to others or, you know, in, you know, we're talking about two different kinds of hearts or something like that, that are somewhat closely have, you know, close related, uh, common ancestry or something like that. Um, then, and, and each can survive. Then he's saying in the variance thing, I think that the cost to having chambers versus no chambers, uh, to him means that there's gotta be a reason why it's there. It has to provide some kind of advantages to the organism. Um, that was sloppy, but, uh, that to me stuck out kind of more than the others because it was just this organ and it was vital, you know, blood and the heart pumping and you can have a heart attack and all that kind of shit. And so, you know, you don't want to mess with the heart, you know, cause otherwise you just keel over and die. So, um, anyway, I don't know how that confuses you. What it makes me want to do is bring back one of the aspects of the Gould paper that I liked and wanted to mention. The emphasis on holism yeah. and the skepticism about traitifying in the first place. Isn't this another way to critique Weinstein for being insufficiently relativistic if he wants to make the point a four-chambered heart is more expensive than a one chamber, you know, one without chambers. Right. Wouldn't that entirely depend on other organismal factors about the creature? Maybe for certain bodies, whatever trait sounds, looks... You know, you can tell some story where, oh yeah, that's that's higher cost, more expensive to do it that way. Well, maybe not for this creature. I don't know if this is making sense. <clears throat> well, you're saying like, given the context of all the other th things that has going on, maybe it works. Maybe having four chambers uh, is is not as expensive. Is that what you're trying to say? This is a science fiction fantastic example, but what if that's how some creature does everything? Well, I'm a quad... I'm a, you know, every, everything. I, make, I got four eyes and four feet and four chambers in my heart, whatever. I got four hearts, I don't know. That's just how I do stuff. It would be more costly for certain organisms... To have a one of, maybe, I don't know. Right. I, I think I understand what you're saying is that there's, and or maybe I don't. But here's me giving a shot at it. That you know the history of the lineage that happens to have four of everything or whatever, you know, is just sort of dictates that that's kind of how it operates. And maybe there's some some crazy. Uh, to us, anyway, <clears throat> um, salience to the whole dang thing. Like, it just, it, it makes sense. But if you were to pluck away at those fours a little bit, make it, you know, reduce those or something like that, you might mess up the whole thing. Is that kind of what you're saying? But for other organisms, maybe it wouldn't. Am I wrong? 
I think that's probably either right or close. Um, Can I actually get to... You're familiar... Yeah, Let me get to something (laughs) that I did like from the Gould thing, which I wonder, to me... um, I'm not saying this is what Weinstein's doing, but I'm saying that I wonder if this is something that Weinstein would like to do um, because it doesn't require... His test doesn't require any more... Like, once, once he feels he's passed the test... It doesn't require any more uh, attention to some of the details that might mess it up or whatever. Um, and I am not saying that he would behave in this way at all, but it was that Galton quote towards the end of the Gould and Lewinton paper, where Galton, um, I think Francis Galton was his name, um, was talking about, uh, you know, uh, entertaining Herbert Spencer, the sort of the great sociologist of the 19th and early 20th, or wait, yeah, early 20th centuries. Um, and Galton was doing something about fingerprints. Do you remember this part? Nope. Okay. So he goes, I may mention, and this is, he's, he's has Herbert Spencer at his lab. He goes, I may mention a characteristic anecdote of Herbert Spencer in connection with something that he was talking about regarding the sort of the ridges, the papillary ridges on the fingertips that make up the prints. You know, why one person has, you know, uh, whorls and the other one's got loops or whatever. And he goes, uh, Spencer asked me to show him my laboratory and to take his prints, which I did. Then I spoke of the failure to figure out I'm kind of moving it around. I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. Then I spoke of the failure to discover the origin of these patterns and how the fingers of the unborn children, of unborn children, had been dissected to ascertain their earliest stages and so forth. Spencer remarked that this was beginning in the wrong way, that I ought to consider the purpose of the ridges, uh, the ridges had to fulfill and to work backwards. Here, he said, it was obvious that the delicate mouths of the sudorific glands required the protection given to them by the ridges on either side of them, and therefrom he elaborated a consistent and ingenious hypothesis at great length. I replied that his arguments were beautiful and deserved to be true. But it happened that the mouths of the ducks did not run in the valleys between the crests, but along the crests of the ridges themselves. And I kind of think that, like, if you can just say, well, fingerprints are complex and, you know, there, there's a cost to, you know, why, you know, we have them or whatever. I feel like maybe you can start to move over some of the details that might, you know, make up or might, you know, hinder your ability to then move on to the next one and say, well, some people have fingerprints and some people don't or some people have whorls and some people have loops, and those with loops are, you know, just as well adapted as those with worlds, but the costs might be different, and all that I'm saying is that, you know, because of these differences in costs, um, that they, they must be an adaptation, because why else would you spend on them? These, you know, you know the, the, the costs of having worlds versus loops, or something like that. I'm, I'm moving around quite a bit on it, but it's just that example to me seems to... S- I kind of want to say it. I just think there's a laziness. Um, and he talks quite a bit about investment 
in his own way. This is Weinstein. And I don't know. I can get into the more meta stuff in a little bit, but that, to me, he's, it just seems like it's like a complexity and costs. I, I like costs more than complexity, but it just seems like you can always get tripped up with something like cost because you could say, oh, well, the, the, the glands aren't where you said they were, you know, and, you know, we, we're really working out of completely different, um, you know, structural frameworks or whatever, and we don't know what to do for you. Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe that didn't go as, as well as I planned. Well, I sure don't know what to do for you. What do you, what do you mean you're going to go to the meta thing? What do you what's the meta? Oh, I have a <clears throat> the meta thing is just that <clears throat> I have a kind of like a I'm trying to figure out what the motivation is for this stuff. Like why would you be frustrated with Gould and Lewinton? Why is it as Weinstein says Gould and Lewinton's um uh, uh uh reasoning why is that insane? You know, like why is it you know, why would he say what it is that he says about... Yeah, that was a good one. He said something like, uh, you know, yeah, sure, all of this sounds totally reasonable and conservative. It's actually insane. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of funny. And I just think, well, when it comes to, like, you know, well, complexity, that sounds easy. You know, that sounds like, you know, like I said, it's like putting your name at the top of the SATs and getting points for it. And then the cost thing, well, you know, as you mentioned, everything has a cost, but it becomes... Uh, I think, of, and maybe I've have not been explaining it very well from my perspective, but costs become easy to compare, right? Complexity is a harder one to compare when you're talking about chlorophyll, you know. I'm now starting to think, well, everything, you know, passes muster, you know, for the most part. All organisms have something complex about them, you know, very complex even, you know. And, um, uh, you know, so again, costs costs can be compared, and you can kind of have a sense for what's going on. But it's still not like, you know, what is the cost? You know, just because it's you know complex, and because there's some sort of, you know, you know investment in it, doesn't mean that it arrived at that point because, uh, you know, it it was more co costly than another. You know, there are some you know, things that might just cost a lot. Like in this country, we, we have to pay a lot more, I think, for worse internet than they do in Europe, you know? And uh, there's nothing I can really do about that. Like, I just have that. And, and I, it, you know, it's, it just seems to me like there's like, sometimes costs are just costs. And I, again, I'm not exactly sure. Um, and so what I was trying to get at was like, well, what is the motivation for all this? Like, why... Why, ultimately, do we want to be able to have our adaptationist program the way that, say, Gould and Lewinton colorfully put it, and the way that I think, to an extent anyway, Weinstein seems to be exhibiting that very thing? I would imagine that Gould and Lewinton would not appreciate Weinstein-style adaptationism. I think he would be exhibiting exactly what they're critiquing, right? Right, I would say so. Um. <clears throat> Your point about the internet would be uh, one of these architectural bioplan type points, right? Because of some structural feature of the world I was born into, 
I pay that cost. Like it's more expensive. I, I have to pay that cost. Like I have no other options. Or, well, not no know, other options. It's a forced move. That's just my main option. You know what I mean? Like, I, and I get it. Like, I'm not trying to go into the necessity maneuver. Just saying that's like. Well, out of all the things that you're going to do in your day, are you going to like, what are you going to spend your time on? Because there's lots of ways to talk about costs, I guess. But, you know, are you just going to pay it and move on, you know, so that you can get all these other things done? You know, like it's that kind of thinking, I think, that maybe Gould and Lewinton, we can at least, that's a positive thing to pull out of it. We can leave the necessity back in 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, we should before we move on to motivations and people and stuff. Um, we should continue with the with the third one, which was the variance one. What was your take on the variation? That seemed ambiguous to the both of us, right? Somewhat. Yeah, but again, it was probably just the mode of presentation. I'm willing to believe that he has a clear distinction here. I, it just wasn't made clear to me in that video. To the extent I was able to attempt to interpret it, I wanted to respond the same way to three as to two and just say, you know, as the general semanticist in me, well, of course, every cost is different. Everything is unique and different. So, uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And again, it's just ubiquitous and therefore not a useful feature or test. If everything passes the test, it's not much of a test. And I just think everything has a cost and everyone's cost is different. So, so as uh, as a friend of ours sometimes likes to say, <laughs> it's trivial! It's tri- Brett, it's trivial! Uh, <laughs> Alright, well then, um, what about this one? Uh, this, was, uh, this was part of... Uh, the Gould and Lewinton paper. And I think what they're talking about in 1979 embodies this third criterion by uh, um, Brett Weinstein. And it comes in the section called The Partial Typology of Alternatives to the Adaptationist Program. And here they, they kind of go through a whole bunch of different you know, ways to think about things. Like there's no adaptation and no selection. Or consider things where there's you know, no adaptation and no selection on, you know, the particular part at issue. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, that there's some correlated consequence, though, of selection directed elsewhere. Uh, then they go in and they talk about, um, you know, the decoupling of selection and adaptation. So selection without adaptation and adaptation without selection. And they're going through these various ways to talk about these. So these would also be other ways to kind of see, hey, with the trait that at hand that I'm talking about, does it match any of these other features, you know? Um, and so, you know, can you come up with a big story about why some sedentary marine organisms like sponges and corals have some of the shapes they do? Or can you be like, you know, this, this better... Looks, this looks like they're adapted without selection to flow regimes in the ocean or whatever. Like, so there is another aspect. But ultimately, what he was saying with that third criterion was this fourth one, which is adaptation and selection, but no selective basis for differences among adaptations. Um, so, you know, 
you know, the idea that, you know, some have costs over here and some have costs over there and that, you know, they're different and somehow that is an indication or one of the kind of indications that you have an adaptation. Um, they talk about species of related organisms or subpopulations within a species, and I'm quoting here, often develop different adaptations as solutions to the same problem. When multiple adaptive peaks, they put in quotes, are occupied, we usually have no basis for asserting that one solution is better than another. You know, so, yeah, there's costs, but the, the benefits outweigh, right? And so the solution followed in any spot is a result of history. So the first step, so you've got your fours, your organisms of fours or whatever that you were talking about, you know, that I was trying to say, like, you've got this history. We do everything in fours around here, you know, that kind of thing. So the first steps went in one direction, though others would have led to adequate prosperity as well, you know. Um, every naturalist has his favorite illustration. And this guy goes in West Indian, uh, you know, Gould, says in the West, because this is his baby, in the West Indian land snail, Syrian, for example, populations living on rocky and windy coasts almost always develop white, thick, and relatively squat shells for conventional adaptive reasons. We can identify at least two, blah, blah, blah. He goes on to talk about various ways. But that seems like what, that's his like third criterion, I think. I'm, I'm not, you know, 100% uh, certain, but I... I think that that matches up well with what I think he's trying to say. And he's saying that's a good example for adaptation. I think they're saying it's a good example of adaptation, but it's not, you know, you know, uh, it's not a universal thing, I guess. So things, organisms have varying uh, directions that they've ended up going in. Or not organisms, but lineages or whatever. I don't know. Let's move on to the fourth one, because... For time, right? <laughs> anyway. Um, so the fourth one persists over evolutionary time. I mean, I thought that, uh, you know, in general, because we are all, you know, people who are, you know, as even Gould and Lewinton mentioned, you know, we're all about the adaptation and natural selection. I thought that, you know, the, it was the winners of history that are remembered or whatever, right? I mean, isn't that persist over evolutionary time? I mean, that just seems like another easy one for him to be able to say. It's not like the ones that are like at near death or what, I mean, like they died, you know, the, 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 the variants that didn't work or whatever. Um, so they wouldn't have been adapted. So it, it just seems like, again, this is more almost, that one almost seems like it's begging the question. But I'm not very good at that kind of talk. Maybe you could clarify for me. But that last one didn't work for me. Either. Hmm. I think I'm interpreting it differently than you. Um, I think what isn't what Weinstein's talking about. We've got our creature here before us. We know it's one of the winners because it's alive. Well, no, because we have fossil or whatever. Anyway, let's say we have a living one, Which and is really it, what it has this about. feature, and we're and we're wondering if it's a well optimized adaptation that's good at doing something. Um, if we look at our evidence of its ancestors and its lineage, if they also had the feature, 
this is just a argument for or a reason to assume that it's positively functional because we and I don't know to what extent this is an article of faith versus a well-reasoned axiom but we're we assume that if you are carrying around something that you don't need over evolutionary time you will lose to the conspecific who is similar to you in every way but doesn't have the expensive non-functional appendage so he talked about those polycosaurs or whatever right like what if the big fan on the back doesn't do anything it's just some mutants have that and maybe we're in a time of surplus and people who carry around big useless fans on their back are fine like it doesn't hurt yeah maybe there's a cost but there's so much everybody's rich right now so i can afford it the assumption is over long enough time those will get weeded out right so that the one who's just as good as you but doesn't have the unnecessary appendage will probably over time lose <clears throat> yeah i'm not sure i fully is that what you were already saying um well i mean it just seems like well if i feel like there's an assumption that everything is adapted uh, is adapted it, there's an assumption that everything is an adaptation and that wouldn't it be though those you know wouldn't it be the things that persist over time to be adaptations you know would, would they not i mean something that has a a cost that isn't necessary that lasts over evolutionary time would be fantastic but I think that, as you're saying, yeah, it gets weeded out over time. So adaptation is in the persists over time, which is a criterion for adaptation. It doesn't, like, wait a minute. I uh, Yeah, yeah. I don't think that I see it that way, at least not yet. I think the assumption is just basically no free riders. I don't think they have to be begging the question and assuming that everything that's in the animal is already an adaptation in the first place. So then those adaptations which survive are obviously adaptations well because everything was an adaptation. I don't think that's what they need to do. I think they just need to assume that any feature, we remain agnostic as to whether it's an adaptation or not, but any trait, if it doesn't give you more than it costs, will be weeded out by the system. But I'm not yet convinced that that assumption is safe. But that's... It's reasonable, and I can I mean, understand it, and like... I mean, it, it, that to me sounds like that's... The nat, you know, natural selection will get rid of it, and those that are found later, in 2018 will have the adaptations that allow them to deal without having to spend as much of the cost that the other ones did. So what you see at the end of the race that persists over evolutionary time is something that was adapted, something that was selected. 
that's I think what their what the idea is. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know how else to put it. I guess that's my other problem. Is the term selection in evolutionary theory bidirectional? Like, is it positive and negative? Um. Yeah, I, I think you could say. Um, selection. People like to talk about it being a creative force, but also um, it being a negative force to get rid of things. Yeah. Okay. But it's the winners that were that had the adapt. So they were better adapted than the ones who get weeded out, and those are the ones we see today. So, and those are also the ones that may have persisted over time their particular characteristics it just all seems i don't know I, i'm not quite sure how to put it differently than that maybe zero members will agree with me um i'm it's like selection trying is built to in. say i think that in an organism there can be i don't know why there can't be a few andrew bogats along with the Steph Currys and Kevin Durant's. Why can it not be the case that you, as an organism, as a team, win, even though you've got some dead weight? If your other traits are really awesome, couldn't you have something costly and non-adaptive, but it still persists over evolutionary time, because in other ways you were good enough and you're saying but about that trait that persists over evolutionary time as a fourth criterion for it being adaptive like I, that doesn't I, mean, it, I don't know how you get like the at the end once you've persisted over evolutionary time and and it was never an adaptive trait gives you adaptive traits you know like it's the, the the trait i'm also arguing against this as a good factor in a test <laughs> i know but i just think that it's like uh, i yeah i would say that um to me to talk about a trait persisting over evolutionary time in order to talk about it being the like the last piece that gives you hey this was this trait was adaptive then if it was non-adaptive how would that be adaptive at the end How would that be? Uh, how would a non-adaptive trait be adaptive? Like, how would that be the final piece? Like, if the trait's not adaptive to begin with, then it shouldn't finally make that last part or something. But all of those traits that didn't make that part, you know, pass muster or whatever, would uh, never reach the end. That's the adaptationist or Weinsteinian assumption. I, I think. think so. And so that's if why I'm asking... If the trait the... doesn't pass muster, then it will be gone. Right. So then what does it matter if it persists over evolutionary time? Isn't that the whole point? Like, don't all those traits persist over evolutionary time because they worked? Because they were... They were something that, that provided a selective advantage to those who bore them? 
So the, the trait's complex. It has a certain cost, but compared to other organisms, um, it's not too bad. And it hangs around for a long time because it's maintained. Well, that just all, that doesn't, I mean, that seems like you've embedded adaptation into your criteria to finally get an adaptation to say, yep, that's an adaptive trait. I'm not seeing your argument that he's begging the question. I don't know how this is embedding adaptation itself inside the test for adaptation. Well, what is it that you're seeing about persisting over evolutionary time or maybe all of the criteria? My critique of persistence over evolutionary time as being either insufficient for or irrelevant to or whatever, the a trait being adaptive, is that it seems to me that non-adaptive traits too could persist over time. Yeah, and I, I... And that was my example of the, you know, if you have all, if you're really strong and good in all these other ways, maybe you can afford to have a couple of hangers-on of traits that don't do anything for you and cost you something anyway, but, yeah, they still persist. Maybe I'm being too sequential about it and that it doesn't really matter. You know, you just line them up together and just, you know, it doesn't matter where... you, You just go to any which one. Maybe you start... Yeah, obviously, it doesn't matter. The order of these things doesn't matter. You start, is this trait... You could say persist first and then do complex third and what it, it the order doesn't matter at all. So you start out, yeah, you start out it's it persists over evolutionary time. You know, it it's it's got a cost, but that cost, you know, you could do a lot of different things. The way he presented it though to me makes makes some sense. Um but even if you started out, yeah, okay. No, I get it. Maybe it's not begging the question. Yeah. To me, I just I was thinking. Well, I already said what I was thinking. Um. I never thought about it as though it had to go in a specific order, and it was like building upon each other, but rather they were just distinct. Right. Um, questions on or aspects of the test. I would think the adaptation, though, yeah, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily building on each other either, but um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, where do we go from here? Has Gould convinced you not to engage in adaptationist reasoning anymore? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, I. I it, Nor was that his intent. Uh, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, then the next, the next bit that I guess. Well, I mean, are, is there anything else about the Weinstein? video that you had? Nope. 
Okay, well, the, le- the next bit that I, I was thinking about was, and it had to do with um, uh, motivations for this kind of a thing. And I guess my thinking was that it it just had to, like he was talking about investment, and I guess that's what kind of made me think about it. He was talking about like you know an immense investment to figure out whether or not the heart, you know, with four chambers was, um, you know, uh, an adaptation or not, and that it's utterly obvious that it is or whatever. Um, and I was thinking, well, maybe maybe it has something to do with the way that, you know just you know the profession is operating you know it's it's you know to be able to invest yourself in all of your education all the effort that goes into really probably starting in your graduate school um you know the early days you know just everything that's just involved like you know with the you know becoming a graduate assistant or a uh you know, um, you know, a, a, you know, research assistant or teaching assistant or something along those lines, and having to come up with you know some some research that you're going to do, you know, depending on you know whether it's a master's or a PhD, how original it has to be, you know, there's just so much effort, and then of course once you actually get into the the last parts of your your education and maybe you. You fulfill everything that you're supposed to fulfill, and you end up going into the the professional world. You have all of this work leading up to this moment where you're maybe going to get a job, and and you're going to figure some things out, and maybe you have your love of the the field or the discipline or whatever it is. And uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that I wonder if it's hard to break once you've got that investment you know i think the i think the the people call it a sunk cost fallacy or something you know like you're going down you know like the question would be like okay you're walking to the grocery store to get you know some groceries or something like that halfway there you forget your wallet and uh you decide "Mm, fucking i'm going to the grocery store anyway even though i don't have my wallet would you do that you know and in some ways, I wonder if some of this adaptationist stuff is follows along those lines. You know, it was okay with my advisor and, and all of my colleagues. And, you know, and then, you know, here comes along, you know, two people who were probably tenured at the time anyway. And so it didn't really matter. And they could sit back uh, potentially on their laurels and start to critique, you know, and, and, you know, not, not have to do the hard work of getting tenure and publishing or perishing or whatever. And, uh, you know, that can be quite aggravating, you know, and I'm guessing that it would be probably nice to be able to just keep doing what it is you trained all those years to do. You know, imagine you get to the end of that race and they're like, well, let's do, you know, it's gotta be something else. You know, you gotta, you you gotta now gonna put it in reverse and now you got to be able to go, you know, drive really good on the roads and do off-roading and do these other, you know, do all these various other things that um, that maybe are you haven't invested like any time. And, and now, now that you've ended, you're at the end of this one road, you got to start investing in these other things as well. You got to be not only good at figuring out adaptation, but you got to be good at figuring out non-adaptive stuff or things that just 
go in different you know directions other than what you're used to and i was wondering to myself when i was reading at least weinstein after you know or not reading weinstein but you know watching the weinstein video after you know reading the gould and lewinton paper and just thinking yeah i mean gould and lewinton's paper is you know it's quite dense it's quite there's quite a bit there for 1979 even though this is 2018 or 2017 that the video comes out and there's been obviously plenty said in the meantime <clears throat> but um i don't know that that was my thought was that there's a uh it's kind of like well fuck you know they want me to do what now you know and i and i wonder how much that motivates this kind of thinking Probably too much for me, anyway. To me, uh, I'm hearing in that an argument against hustling again, and you know this why an advantage dawdlers have. If one of your projects is non-intellectual, such as getting a PhD, if you have all these institutional projects, but then tie your ideas to that well the way that i accomplish this non-intellectual goal is through my intellectual means and my intellectual endeavors if it is proven to me in year three of four that my idea sucks like you're saying sunk cost i would rather pursue the completion of the non-idea-based goal, right? So, well, forget it. I'll ab abandon my intellectual integrity or whatever it is. I'll follow this idea in order to accomplish these other things that matter to me. The impurity of institutionalized intellectual endeavor. Yeah. Maybe that was not at all your intent, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I was hearing. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's any place to go with it, to be honest with you. I just, for some reason, thought I should say something. Because I, I do wonder what motivates this shit, you know? Because it's kind of, I mean... <clears throat> uh, it does seem quite difficult to do, and I think one of the things that would have been great is if Gould and Lewinton decided to put out an uh, an example of adaptation that they liked, you know, like an adaptive explanation, a study of birds or whatever it was, that they were like, yeah, this is what we're talking about. This This, to us, is really convincing, you know, or this other one, too, you know, and instead of just kind of leaving it as a critique... For everyone else to figure out. Kind of reminds me of um, one time in this one, uh, it was like a programming textbook that I had. And it was one of those kind of things that um, none of us really read because it was super esoteric. But when I was doing my, my master's, I did go back to it because I, I wanted to see if there was anything in there that, you know, would be helpful and I was trying to do a particular kind of numerical scheme for this one model that I had. And um, the guy takes you all the way up to, like, setting it up. 
but then like doesn't help you at all with pointing you in a direction of like well this is you know this is a setup for how to do how to use this type of numerical scheme on you know any model let's take a look at these models you know he just kind of like you figure it out punk you know kind of has this element mm-hmm. and i just remember even with some of my students and i was just like well how do you execute this thing you know i guess i have to figure it out myself but that's not going to be easy you know and 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 uh um that's kind of what it seems like here it's just sort of like a you know this is you know these are all the problems and you know it's like well i guess you guys don't have any solutions either like that's sort of you know you're just talking about other things with a wistful in a wistful way or whatever um as if wouldn't it be great if we went to ball plans and constraints but you know i don't know there's a lot of momentum that kind of fizzles in this paper i think to an extent and it you know obviously has its greatest you know force at the beginning with the with the examples that it gives regarding or the metaphors that it gives but then um and it has a number of good examples and i like that it spreads itself out quite a bit but then after a while it's like well what what are we supposed to do here like that that's one of my issues with critiques in and of themselves without an actual like you know positive side because the i just you know it's like not making any friends you know like um yeah there is something i was going to talk about i've never yeah good i've never had a problem with that i'm and perhaps it's because i'm a frequent polemicist myself but i think critique does not obligate one to provide a positive program it's it can be nice but i think it's optional and pure destruct purely destructive projects have a value of their own i think yeah but the words you just used to me i i would switch out you know no one said anything was an obligation Number two, um, it's not a, just a, an option. It's preferable. Like, you know, you know, it's not just like, eh, come, easy come, easy go. It's, uh, it's, a pref- it's a preferred thing. It's not something that you just you know, kind of say, well, they just happened well, to do it or they did By you, apparently. I'm saying I don't prefer that. And... That you balk at the word obligation doesn't mean you're not giving them one. When you say it's preferred, it would be nice if one of the reasons I found this paper wanting was that it didn't X. I mean, that's where obligation comes from. To you, but to me, that's not where obligation comes from. It's just a suggestion it's not a or it could be a recommendation it's not a it's not a mandate well what's your positive program where does obligation come from i think we mean something different by obligation probably i suppose um yeah 
anyway, that those were just the thoughts that I had. Okay, have you reached the end of things that you wanted to talk about? I think so. I think I'm regarding yeah. this topic. Yeah, I think so. On this night, uh-huh. can always revisit. Yeah, I could say the same thing. Okay. Which means it's time for awkward goodbyes. Goodbye, awkwards. <laughs> I stopped the recording. Okay. <laughs> oh man. All right. You. I'm tired. You didn't sound very thrilled either. What's going on over there? I. I I'm probably tired too. Like I don't have any energy at the end of the day after dealing with kids. And so, yeah, 